Hello, and welcome back to Making Queer History Public from the American Social History Project at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York, or the CUNY Graduate Center. Making Queer History Public examines the efforts of queer and trans historians, archivists, activists, and educators to preserve the LGBTQ history and make it accessible to the public. I'm your host for today. My name is Rachel Pitkin, and I'm a PhD student in American history at the CUNY Graduate Center and a graduate fellow at the American Social History Project. In this episode, we wanted to draw attention to the work of educators who have been on the front lines of preserving queer history and topics in our classrooms, working to ensure that they secure a place in the critical public sphere of our school communities. Specifically, we'll explore the efforts of educators in New Jersey who recently fought to pass the state's first inclusive education law. In 2019, this law made it legal and mandatory to incorporate LGBTQ topics across content areas and to create inclusive lesson structures and classroom environments. We'll hear about the strategies they've used to raise awareness about the urgency and benefits of LGBTQ curriculum in the recent past and how they've sought to mobilize allies and shape state and local educational policies. And the topic is timely. As don't say gay bills and book bans are being initiated and enacted throughout the country within our curriculums and our libraries, and as our transgender friends are under attack by a wide variety of state-sponsored initiatives, and is especially close to my heart, I consider myself to be a veteran educator. Before starting my PhD in American history at the CUNY Graduate Center in 2022, I taught history and social studies in a variety of settings, from middle school to community college, with my most recent position at a high school in New York City called the Brooklyn Latin School. When I first listened to these interviews that you're about to hear segments of, I couldn't help but think of my former students and the countless others who benefit from the work of the types of educators and advocates that you'll hear from today. But before we go further, it's important to set some context. These interviews were conducted during the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. You'll hear from Kate Okeson and Dr. Lori Burns, who at the time of this interview represented the advocacy groups Make It Better for Youth and Garden State Equality. Kate, who we'll start with, is co-founder and director of Make It Better for Youth. Lori will follow, who is a member of the advisory board for Make It Better for Youth, a longtime high school principal and manager of the state's inclusive curriculum. Here they'll start by explaining their motivations for embarking on this important work, which ranged from reflecting on the gaps in their own education to learning about the sometimes awful experiences of LGBTQ youth who endured bullying or the pangs of invisibility. Let's listen as they describe the emotional origins of their work. I'm an educator. I've been teaching for almost 25 years now, and I've worked with youth um, you know, had a sort of early in terms of New Jersey uh, Gay Straight Alliance and the high school in which I work. Um, but this uh, particular, um, I'll say, news cycle focus around these um, really burnt a hole deep through my middle. I often say that. So I went through 12 years of formal K-12 education, a bachelor's, a master's, a doctorate. So we're talking about over 20 years of formal education three of which I paid for myself through universities and the amount of lessons or materials that I had that had LGBTQIA people represented or topics represented were zero. Um, so that's, that's just unacceptable. It's unacceptable for public education. It's unacceptable for higher education. And um, I had been to a 
a workshop at the library one weekend and ran into some other people who were sort of similarly at wit's end and ready to do something about it. Um, and so we put together an information meeting at a, at a local community college. And we had over 60 people who sort of self-identified as some sort of um, adult supporter, ally, whether they were educators or supportive services or um, something sort of parallel to that. Um, out of that, I formed Make It Better for Youth. I co-founded with one other person. Um, and we started doing smaller uh, regional, sort of Central Jersey regional events for teens where they could start to see themselves a little bit. So hearing from young trans musicians or talking to um, people who um, were AIDS survivors and uh, worked as part of ACT UP in early activism and organizing. So they start to talk to people that were just like them as youth. I think it's easy within our current moment to feel despair. I know I've had many moments of fear and worry sweep over me, especially while anti-LGBTQ plus extremists and white supremacists are emboldened. But to me, this type of grassroots organizing that Kate and Lori describe is also inspirational. Truly a reminder that like-minded people exist and a model for how to find them, which I shouldn't have been surprised to hear actually started at the library. But after Kate co-founded Make It Better for Youth, the group began further connecting LGBTQ plus youth with queer and trans community members and activists. And in 2019, Make It Better for Youth joined with Garden State Equality to begin lobbying the state of New Jersey for an LGBTQ plus curriculum law. Kate recalled what happened next. You know, I get a phone call one night that says, this looks good. This looks like we're going to have a shot with LGBTQ inclusive curriculum. And so as a classroom teacher, you know, what does that mean? I'm going to be told, right, it's going to be legislated. It's going to be public law or some sort of policy that says, um, hey, you, classroom teacher, you're going to be held to doing this thing. We're not going to hold your hand. We're not going to teach you how. And we're not going to give you any money. I had a one-day summit at a local school with about two and a half dozen teachers that came, and uh, and we're thinking, okay, we can dovetail, we can figure this out, let's maybe put together some guidance. I'm sure that educators in a variety of different environments can empathize with many of the moments that Kate spoke to here. First, after feeling this initial excitement, that LGBTQ plus inclusive curriculum stood the chance of passing within the New Jersey State Senate during the summer of 2019, Kate and the rest of the group dealt with the reality that legislation didn't necessarily equal resources, like curriculum, funds, and other tools that would be needed to make the inclusive curriculum mandate a success. That the group anticipated the gap in resources that would exist in the wake of the curriculum's potential passage is impressive. It gives insight into the type of collaboration and curriculum writing and design that teachers implement on a daily basis, though arguably this was a special situation that required particular expertise. So even while the bill was still in committee, Make It Better for Youth began writing curriculum and stepped up their lobbying in anticipation of the curriculum's passage. For context, Kate mentions here a person named Rebecca Brusoff, She's a 16-year-old trans activist who first gained attention after she spoke at a rally in 2017 in response to the Trump administration's rescinding of transgender guidelines for students in schools. The sign she carried said, I'm the scary transgender student the media warned you about, and it went viral. Rebecca was also one of the many individuals who lobbied the state in support of LGBTQ plus inclusive curriculum. Let's listen to Kate again. It goes into the Senate. It's in the, in the uh, Senate uh, Education Committee. It 
we lobby in June of that year. We avail ourselves of any questions of talking to folks that are going to vote on it in June. We also had to make sure that it was on public record our professional opinions in education from a teacher standpoint, from a student standpoint. Um, and, you know, Rebecca Brusoff spoke really eloquently at that time um, about what it means to be a youth who is, um, you know, living in a, a, an affirmed identity with their family and friends, but has a school building that may not do the same with its, you know, content and, uh, and practices. Um, comes out of education committee, signed into law. Awesome. Awesome. So on January 31st, 2019, Governor Phil Murphy signed into law Assembly Bill 1335, the LGBTQ plus responsive curriculum law, which made New Jersey outside of California the second state in the nation to sign such legislation. The bill mandated that middle and high schools develop inclusive curriculum that portray the social, political, and economic contributions of LGBTQ plus individuals across content areas. What this meant was that in addition to history and social studies teachers sharing lessons about elements of queer history, the bill called for all educators, from science to art, to consider the ways in which they could design or incorporate LGBTQ plus representation or content into their courses and classrooms. Obviously, for some teachers, this would be brand new territory. The moment was exciting, yet filled with uncertainty. But out of that uncertainty, Make It Better for Youth, in partnership with Garden State Equality, undertook intense planning in hopes of making the bill live up to its potential in classrooms throughout New Jersey. At that same time, um, our organization put together a retreat for three days where we again invited some people who had come to this earlier summit, and then more, more folks came. Um, and we got a crazy uh, UU camp in South Jersey and like like summer camp for nerd teachers. I mean, but it was winter, it wasn't summer. And, um, and we were talking about what in my career is probably one of the most hostile curriculum moments to sort of ever like for us to ever face. And, okay. and and it was like a bunch of us who showed up. We were all what what is considered in the business veteran educators, right? We all had years under our belt. People who have really represent the best of the the best of what we want people to experience, the kids to experience in the classroom, but also they know they they're always learning and they knew there was a need for more. So they were bringing their own professional questions and their professional experience. Um, and we kind of showed up and we're like, uh, well, I guess, okay. Disciplines go in this room over here, administration and cultural competencies over here. And like, and then it was like, let's do this. What does it look like? Um, and it, and it was nerdy. And that's what I'm saying. Like, we were really in the thick of pedagogy. Summer camp for nerd teachers. I can almost feel the energetic buzz that Kate described here because I've been lucky enough to experience that type of energy firsthand. But most significant to me is that during this summit, these teachers expressed a seasoned educator understanding that I believe often gets overlooked in the public and in the news when so many people have so much to say about the work teachers do and the ways that they should do it. Curriculum work of this caliber needs to be created, workshopped, and designed by experts and teachers themselves. 
legislation doesn't equate to implementation and it requires continued effort. So what type of pedagogical strategies did make it better for youth and garden state equality call for within the LGBTQ plus responsive curriculum? Well, under the curriculum guidelines, educators would develop a deep awareness of not only their classroom content, but of their messaging and delivery. And this applied to all teachers, again, not just social studies and history. It's a cross-content approach that calls for teachers to build culturally competent lessons that speak to the needs of students and educators from all backgrounds. Make It Better for Youth and Garden State Equality knew that teachers would have to be supported in learning this type of curriculum writing. One of our main groups, in our ELA group, created a lesson plan format that helps teachers and it comes from, it's scholarly, it's based in scholarly research and application, and it aids teachers in structuring a lesson and you wouldn't, and it's so long, you would, I admit it, you would never do it for every lesson you teach, but it is a great way to go through the process of saying, here are the points where I'm going to intentionally include a cultural competency that I haven't addressed. Here's an in, here's a place where I know there's a potential misconception because I'm reflecting on the fact that I'm nervous about it in this moment. And we wanted to take those things that were affective for teachers and move them into part of their um, their uh, ability to focus on that and address that and intentionally move through that with, with teaching. Kate is very specific here and mentioned something called a cultural competency. Cultural competency, or to become culturally competent, means to increase your cultural intelligence. Youth development specialist Benita Williams describes this as the ability of individuals and systems to work or respond effectively across cultures in a way that acknowledges and respects the culture of the person or organization being served. She goes on to say, Culturally competent youth development workers are aware and respectful of the values, beliefs, traditions, customs, and parenting styles of the audiences being served. To become more culturally competent, one must first be aware of their own biases and tendencies. How a teacher sees their classroom or their students and the type of language that they use. They need to be aware of their curriculums, taking stock of what the curriculum includes, but also what it excludes or what it needs. Essentially, small moments of representation are built into lessons that can generate awareness amongst all students. LGBTQ plus cultural competencies would include using appropriate and inclusive language about gender and sexual orientation. Perhaps at a grade school level, it might include the use of picture books that include families with same-sex parents, unsurprisingly, some of the same books that governors such as Ron DeSantis are seeking to ban. Of course, becoming culturally competent or intelligent is something that needs to be worked toward. It often requires practice. As we'll hear Lori discuss in just a moment, it is incredibly important for teachers who work with youth from diverse cultural backgrounds or backgrounds different from their own, and for teachers working in predominantly white environments. Not only do students need to feel heard and understood by their teachers, but their teachers need to build blocks of empathy and prepare students for diverse work in social environments. However, it doesn't stop with the teachers and students. It's administration, too. Let's listen as Lori and Kate describe the network of education professionals and adults needed to support changes such as the LGBTQ plus responsive curriculum, the impact such work has for the entire school community, and another strategy incorporated into the curriculum that educators often refer to as windows and doors. We have phenomenal teachers in New Jersey. We always have. However, 
when you don't have a, an instructional leader, a principal, superintendent, director who um, who wants an inclusive, safe, and affirming school for all students, those uh, excellent teachers really cannot move forward or as much as they would like to. So it's important to have those leaders leading in that capacity. So we went over the cultural competencies um, that we would expect our leaders to have and ha- what that would look like for inclusive lessons and materials based on the work that we were doing. Kate and I have done a lot of work together and in many of our presentations, we've talked about the concept of windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors doors uh, by Sims Bishop and basically saying that it's obvious that this work is really beneficial for LGBTQIA plus students, uh, staff members, community members. However, what some people don't realize is that it's beneficial for all students uh, because when you're learning about different types of people that exist in the world, um, and maybe you don't see all these types of people in your school or your community, when you are moving on to college or the workforce or whatever you choose to do in life, you'll have a, a well-rounded understanding of different types of people beyond yourself or your own community. Students can see themselves reflected in their schools and their lessons They can look through a window and look into a world that might be a little bit different from their own world and the sliding glass door where you can then step into another world that maybe you're not that familiar with and see what it feels like to be a part of that world. And I think that's important for all students to be able to do for all different types of people and communities. I take as one of our core beliefs that this is not just about the children either. I have a 16 year old kid. I talked to him about his friends and his experiences, I'm going to tell you, I think the kids are all right, you know? Um, And there's a lot more work to be done with adults in these buildings um, in terms of their ability to stretch and accept new narratives or that other narratives have existed along with theirs that they just haven't acknowledged. The kids are all right. I agree. A lot of the kids are more than all right when it comes to LGBTQ plus topics and topics of gender and sexuality. In the spring of last year, from March through May, hundreds of students walked out of their schools in states from Iowa and Indiana to Florida in protest of anti-LGBTQ plus rhetoric and legislation and to speak out against efforts to censor their curriculums. I've read accounts of queer individuals and activists from the past who spent hours in libraries or with their noses in encyclopedias and newspapers, searching tirelessly for elements of queer history. They often looked for people who reminded them of themselves or just about topics that they were incredibly curious about and didn't have access to in their schools. This is part of the reason why I think inclusive curriculum initiatives supported by groups such as Make It Better for Youth and Garden State Equality are so critical, especially now while our students have access to a sea of information at their fingertips. These groups ensure that the information that our students are receiving are researched, vetted, and appropriate. And that mirrors windows and sliding glass doors concept that Lori mentioned earlier, well, it was first coined by the Ohio State University professor Rudin Sims Bishop. This is a concept in which teachers can essentially provide opportunities for students to step into worlds different from their own or see themselves reflected in a curriculum or media in order to build cultural competency. These are things many of us who are curious about the world do in our daily lives already. When I watch a documentary with my partner or learn about another culture's food from a different part of the world with my family, 
I and we are building our cultural competency in some way. Just as many adults also attempt to do in their daily lives, strategies such as this that are found within inclusive curriculums are meant to prepare students for real-world scenarios and to interact and understand people who are different from themselves. As I sat down and listened to Kate and Lori's interviews, it became clear that a core belief of theirs, of Make It Better for Youth and of Garden State Equality, is that it is irresponsible to wait for textbooks to be updated or for curriculum to be supplied. Resources must be actively secured to support the visibility and safety of LGBTQ plus individuals and students. And very significantly to our podcast, that those resources be made public. As we begin to conclude, let's listen to the ways in which Kate and Lori make their work and resources available to the wider public and how they see their work relating to education beyond the K through 12 classroom, specifically to teacher training and preparation. We have a lot of feelings when it comes to talking about gender identity and sexual orientation. Um, So there's certainly a little bit of hot potato. I'm like, I'm not sure how to deal with this. I'm not sure how to deal with this. Um, So, you know, the steps that we've taken are, number one, all the lessons that were created for the pilot, everything is free and available online. Number one, all of our research, all of our advice, all of our um, resources, anything that we point to, because we point to a lot. We did not invent this wheel, right? We were using things that are time-tested, pedagogically appropriate um, methodologies, right? So we rounded that up, and that's on our teach.lgbt website. Second piece is uh, we had a conference that was open to all educators in New Jersey, educational leadership, educational leaders. We also present like crazy. Kate and I have had many conversations with uh, state universities and colleges because, you know, it's one thing for a district to train teachers and administrators once they're already in the school district. Um, However, I strongly believe that teachers and educational leaders should be coming out of their program, getting their certificate with a strong understanding of the LGBTQ uh, community, instructional practices, inclusive lessons um, for all historically mar- marginalized groups. And unfortunately, they're not. So school districts are then having to fund and backfill on information that I strongly feel that people should be coming out of their their programs understanding. So we've been able to have conversations with multiple universities regarding Uh, their curriculum, and their uh, programs in general. It is clear that in 2021, the bill in support of inclusive LGBTQ plus curriculum empowered educators like Kate and Lori to do the right thing on behalf of their students. As they try to make clear, passing legislation that supports inclusive curriculum is not only worth it for our students, but for our entire communities. Um, However, I used to do trainings where I would say, you know, this is beneficial for your students. This is beneficial for your community. I'm hopeful that you'll utilize this information in your in your schools and in your classrooms. However, now that we have legislation, it's a very different conversation. And I really do enjoy being able to say, this is what you must do. This is what the law says. Um, this is how you will support this person in your school because they are a protected class. And this is how you're going to weave it into your lessons, the materials that you adopt, um, things that you have hanging up in your school building, the ways of which people talk to each other. I really do enjoy the being able to say, no longer say, I hope that you do this because it would be good for you and for the students. And now it's more so you need to do this because this is the law. What we were saying to them is 
this is New Jersey's legacy in improving public education. We we are, as much as Lori and I sit here and say, man, we want certain things to be better, we are still operating in such a, uh, a place of, of privilege in so many ways because we do have so much support for broadening education, for educator training, for um, what what progressive education can be in this state. So we said to them, it's worth it. I mean, at the end of the day, give me one really good reason why we, this shouldn't happen. There, there isn't, there isn't one, you know? Oh, more, more, you know, equity, more awareness, more critical reasoning. Duh. You know, <laughs> more accuracy, more fact, more, you know, better at addressing all these particular, you know, histories that have eliminated things. I mean, like, there's just, like, from a scholarly standpoint, there's no reason why not, right? And it's in schools where that sort of rubber meets the road, so. At ASHP, we really liked that line. It's in schools where the rubber meets the road, because it aligns so much with the public-facing work that we do with our teachers within our own institution. And we're grateful for educators such as Kate and Lori and all of the teachers who work to ensure that their students have a safe learning environment and access to quality education. Since this interview, information has come out that shows groups such as Make It Better for Youth are filling a critical vacuum. In 2022, the New Jersey Historical Commission published a report on social studies in New Jersey schools. The commission's research found that more than half of the responding schools reported that their instructional resources were insufficient for teaching about LGBTQ plus people, people of differing abilities, and Latino and African American history. A situation undoubtedly exasperated by lack of funding, recovery from COVID, and the fraught political landscape already impacting some of the most vulnerable folks in our country. What is clear is that advocacy work of this type is a constant form of labor. The work doesn't end the moment legislation passes, nor does progressive legislation automatically guarantee improved social conditions, or in this case, widespread automatic adoption of LGBTQ inclusive curriculum. If you would like to read more about Make It Better for Youth or access some of the materials that Kate discussed, you can visit them at www.makeitbetterforyouth.org. That's with a four. And if you'd like to learn more about Garden State Equality and the work they're currently doing to combat anti-queer and trans discrimination, you can visit them at www.gardenstateequality.org. And special thanks to American Social History Project staff members Danielle Bennett and Peter Mobley, who conducted these interviews back in 2020. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Making Queer History Public. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play so you don't have to miss it. And let us know what you thought about this episode by tweeting us at ASHP underscore CML. On our website, ashp.cuny.edu, you can find more resources related to teaching and learning LGBTQ history, including sample teaching activities, historical documents, and other materials for educators. Making Queer History Public is a production of the American Social History Project slash Center for Media and Learning at the CUNY Graduate Center and is made possible by funding from Humanities New York. 
This podcast was researched, written, and recorded by Rachel Picken and Ann Balk, and edited, sound engineered, and produced by David Sheckle. Donna Thompson is our production manager, and thanks to Danielle Bennett, Maggie Schreiner, Peter Mabley, and the American Social History Project slash Center for Media Learning. Special thanks to our guests, Kate Okeson and Dr. Lori Burns.